Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and uh, bow our heads and, uh, and pray. Um, Father God, enlarge our vision of who you are. All creation bears witness to your name, the stars, the heavens, the angels, all that is beyond our planet, all that is beyond our understanding was made by you. For you created all that is by your command. Everything has been made that ever was. Let the earth praise you, the clouds form, lightning flashes at your command, mountains and hills and trees and crops and valleys and rivers testify to your immensity, to your greatness, to your grandeur. If we were to remain silent, even the stones would cry out in testimony to you. Father, enlarge our vision. Loosen our lips and praise. Help us to boldly give thanks to you for what you've done. And above all, we want to praise you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are amazed that once your enemies, you are, have forgiven us and we are adopted as your children. Father, we're washed by Jesus' sacrifice and waiting for his return. Strengthen us. Teach us to be holy. In your spirit, we wait expectantly for what you will do and who we will be. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to start out this morning, um, just wanted to do a, a quick little exercise. Uh, this is, uh, these are three men who had to remove something for their, from their lives. Three men who had to remove something from their lives. They had to leave something or someplace in order to receive what was better. So as you listen, see if you can identify who these three men were. Uh, the first one, uh, there once was a man from an idolatrous land God called to leave his home. He left family and friends following God's ends. From then on, he would roam. Anybody? Abraham. So we've got Abraham. Uh, the second one, there once was a man who grew up in a palace but saw his people as slaves. They left this place that enslaved his race and followed the God who saves. Who was that? Moses. All right, great. We're getting better here. Uh, last one. Uh, there once was a man who fought giant and king, nations and people he knew, but when faced with a sin, he dropped to his chin the repentant king of the Jews. David. David. Yeah, David. So Abraham, Moses, and David had this in common. They left what was not God to follow Yahweh, the one true God. They followed God, who had revealed his name to Moses from the fire. I am, I was, I will always be. Uh, Abraham left his idolatrous home. Moses left his idolatrous palace. And David left the idolatry of his heart. Sometimes we need to remove things from our lives that are not God in order to receive the one who is. Um, and that's the, the message this morning. We are um, considering removing what is not God in order to receive what is God. Uh, this means that we must also remove what is unholy in order to receive what is holy. Um, we've been going through a series on Ezra and Nehemiah. This is actually one book that has been divided into two. It's by one author. It's the same story. And, uh, and for the last three Sundays, we've learned about uh, the return from captivity uh, under Zerubbabel and then the second wave of people returning under Ezra. 
And Ezra returned in order to restore Mosaic law and right temple worship. So now we come to a very disturbing part of the book. Uh, it has to do with removing what is not holy, as we mentioned, uh, but what's disturbing is what specifically gets removed here uh, are foreign wives, and in some cases, their children. Um, and so uh, the foreign wives are what are considered unholy in this book. They're sent away, families are broken up, the situation is uncomfortable, messy, distasteful, disturbing, but it is in the Word of God for a reason, and we need to learn from it this morning. Um, so let's take a look at what happened and see if we can come up with some conclusions on this narrative. Our story begins with uh, this man named Ezra. So last week we introduced Ezra. Uh, he was the leader of the second wave of exiles returning from Jerusalem. And Ezra was an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew about the law. He knew about the proper worship in the temple. And uh, he knew how to properly worship God. By the order of uh, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, Ezra was to return, and he was commanded to bring Jewish exiles back from Jerusalem, especially priests and Levites who would serve in the temple. He was also commanded to focus on right worship, obedience to the law, and uh, restoring the sacrificial system. A great deal of money was entrusted to Ezra for these purposes. Um, so instead of asking Artaxerxes for an armed escort, uh, what Ezra did is he commanded the people to pray and fast for God's protection and provision uh, along the way. They were carrying a great deal of treasure on a, on a journey that would take about four months, and, uh, and Ezra's solution was to pray and fast. And in fact, they did arrive safely in Jerusalem uh, after their journey, and our passage today picks up about four and a half months after uh, the Jews arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, now, in order to understand what happens next, we need to understand more about Ezra himself. Uh, Ezra had devoted his whole life to studying God's word. This was his life. Uh, he deeply desired to know God, to worship him, and to make him known. This is the air that Ezra breathed, and this is what woke him up in the morning. Uh, for Ezra to return to Jerusalem was like a dream come true. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God's presence was said to dwell. That made the temple holy. And the further one moved into the temple grounds, the more holy that place became. And then, as a teacher of the law, Ezra knew the importance of holiness. He knew passages like Leviticus 11.44, For I am holy, I, I'm the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Or Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or Leviticus 20.26, somebody's saying, can we get Leviticus here? Um, you are holy, you are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, who have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And Deuteronomy 23.14, your camp shall be holy. Joel 3.17, Jerusalem shall be holy. We kind of get the idea. There's, a, there's this idea pressing into God's holiness. And Ezra knew that even the physical structure of the temple commanded holiness. 
Beyond the court surrounding the temple was the holy place where only the priests could go. And in the holy place was the altar of incense with the smoke going up with the, with the prayers of the saints. And if one were to travel beyond that point through the curtain, they would enter the most holy place or the holy of holies where only the high priest could go only once a year with blood uh, for the atonement of the sins of the people. Surely this was a holy place. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, God's presence filled that temple in such a way that no one could enter because of the holiness of the presence of God. Now, if, uh, if you and I were to travel to Jerusalem even today, we might experience a little bit of what took place back then. Uh, pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem singing psalms of ascent as they went up the hill towards the temple or towards the Temple Mount. Uh, people prayed. They read uh, or recited God's word. They sought God's favor. The temple of God was different than any other place. Um, other nations worship multiple gods, but this is the one place. This is the place where the one true God was worshiped. So here's Ezra, thrilled with the Lord's protection and favor, excited to be in Jerusalem, uh, he settled down with the people expectantly, but he soon learned that there were some problems with this worship that was taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, leaders came up to him, and this is Nezra 9, 1 through 2, uh, the, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the people around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now remember, all of his life, Ezra had longed for God's presence. He'd longed for the holiness of God. Holiness was a big deal to him. And here he learns that the leaders and spiritual leaders are leading the way in this unholy practice. Um, uh, just question, if, if you and I were to learn of something unholy taking place in our life or uh, the lives of, of people in our church or whatever, how would we feel about it? How would we react? Well, this is how Ezra reacted from uh, Ezra 9, 3 through 4. He tore his tunic and cloak. He pulled hair from his head and his beard, and he sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around him because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, and he sat there appalled until evening sacrifice. So the language is indicating that Ezra's like he's turning pale, he's trembling, he's, he's sick in his spirit over what's taking place here. And we ask, was Ezra overreacting here? Did he have a severe case of ethnocentricity or xenophobia? Was he, was he just uh, really kind of a racist? Why was he reacting so strongly to intermarriage? Now, it wasn't for any of those reasons. If you remember, Ezra is an expert of the law, and we look at Exodus 34, 16, among other passages, but this one reads, when you choose some daughters, uh, some of their daughters as wives for your sons and daughters uh, prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Uh, in other words, when, when you intermarry among the people, the 
um, the intermarriage will lead you astray. Uh, did this happen, in fact? Well, Ezra also understood history, and Solomon's wives led him astray. Jezebel's idolatry influenced King Ahab to promote Baal uh, worship, among other things. And the idolatry was so bad under King Josiah, when he cleansed the land, he actually had to move, remove an Asherah pole, an idol, from the temple of the Lord. Finally, because of all their transgressions, God gave the Israelites over to their enemies. So Ezra's big concern, the reason he's so disturbed and upset, is because of the negative consequences of idolatry among the people. This isn't just foreign wives to Ezra. This is actually the introduction of idolatry into the nation. And so Ezra tore his hair and clothing and sat down for hours until about 3 p.m. for the evening sacrifice. And in his anguish, he prayed. Ezra 9, 6 I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. So from Ezra's perspective, the people got a reprieve. They had been in exile for 70 years. They had been able to return to the land as they had been promised by the prophets. And then all of this was taking place, which was going to land them in the very same spot to begin with. They had been exiled because of idolatry, and here they were heading right back down the same road. And so the people gather around Ezra while he was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. And then Shechaniah said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God, marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But despite this, there's still hope for Israel. So what Shechaniah recommended is that they should put away these foreign women. If they should send away the foreign women, and if there are children, um, they should send them away as well. Continuing to fast and mourn, Ezra commanded that all the people gather. If the people did not come to this assembly, they would lose everything they owned. They had to assemble. And so um, they came together, and the particular day that they'd chosen was wet and miserable and rainy. Everyone's together. They're miserable because of the topic. They're miserable because of the weather. Ezra stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourself from the people around you and from your foreign wives. Now, the people agreed. They said, we'll do that, but we, we can't do it all in, uh, in one day here. This is, a, this is a complicated issue. And so what they agreed to do is to go back to their towns, and the elders of those towns would settle how this would all take place. And then the book of Ezra ends with a list of men who had married foreign women, starting with priests, the Levites, the singers, and then the people of Israel. Everything is recorded. And so ends the book of Ezra. Well, not really because it's Ezra and Nehemiah, so it's sort of a, an intermission that we have taking place here. Now, 
Um, I know that we'd like to have, uh, you know, and they all lived happily ever after at the end here, and this doesn't sound like that. Um, and when I, when I first started thinking, well, I've got to preach uh, Ezra chapters 9 and 10, I, I got to tell you, I, I wasn't super excited. And I thought, well, uh, yeah, we, we've got to go through this passage, but, uh, but what's it going to do for us here? And um, by God's grace, as I was um, considering this passage and this idea that uh, the people would actually uh, put aside um, people they'd been married to, this is a splitting up of families and, and, uh, and, and things that we don't like to hear about. Um, but coinciding with this was a personal conviction of a need for, um, for personal holiness and for holiness within our congregation, the importance of us as Christians actually seeking out holiness. Now, <clears throat> let's not misunderstand um, a, a couple things about this passage. First of all, uh, the people there should not have married foreign wives. Uh, according to Scripture, they, um, at that particular time, they shouldn't have done this because the other people were idolatrous and it would, in fact, lead them into idolatry. But what's not prescriptive is their solution to the matter, what should take place after they'd already sinned. The situation was a complete mess. How are we going to undo the mess? It's like you pull apart a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, you know, it's a mess. It had already been put together. And so the, the solution here is descriptive, it's not prescriptive. And also, um, the Bible nowhere advocates divorce. Um, and in many places, it says God hates divorce. Jesus talked about there are very few instances where it could be acceptable for a divorce to occur. And so this passage actually isn't about divorce at all. This passage uh, is as much as putting away foreign wives is central to it, it's not about the putting away uh, wives that this, that's the central principle of this passage. The central principle of this passage is holiness. And things need to be put away as a result of that. And um, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what uh, can fellowship and light um, and light have with darkness. Uh, Christians um, should marry those who believe, not those who don't believe. They should be in the same spot, otherwise they'll be un unequally yoked and they'll be a, a pushing and pulling. So uh, having a common faith to share is an important thing. But, um, but what about the mess? Um, you know, I, I was thinking about that um, if, if God is holy, and if we're to press into God's holiness, what about the mess? Um, it, may not be, um, it may not be the mess of marrying foreign women. It may be the mess of something else. You know, uh, it seems that the devil doesn't create his own things. He sort of corrupts that which is good. And so the good things that God has given us become something that's not good. So, for instance, uh, the area of, of, um, of relationships between a man and a woman, of, of, um, 
of a right relationship, a right physical relationship between a man and a woman, the area of sex, becomes pornography. Or the lips that God gave us to uh, speak with and to, to bless him, to bless other people, sometimes they get used for other things, uh, gossip or malicious talk or slander or, or just saying things that we shouldn't say. Uh, a good thing that God gave us becomes corrupted or any number of other things, the physical things that God gave us. Uh, God has given us um, everything, uh, that the, the creation that gives us food to eat and clothes to wear and a place to live and all these sorts of things. So all of a sudden we can um, be more concerned about those things than God himself because the greatest gift that God can give us is him. And so when we press into these things in the wrong sort of way and we make wrong alliances or we make things central in our lives that shouldn't be central, sometimes it creates something that's very hard to undo. And yet in order for us to press further into God's holiness, some things need to be removed. I was thinking in the area of discipleship. Jesus commanded us to make disciples. It's one of the central commandments of Scripture. And discipleship, uh, what is it if not the pursuit of holiness? Um, discipleship is helping people find their way back to God. Discipleship is walking with Jesus into the holiness, the grandeur, and the goodness of God. Uh, to be a disciple, to make disciples, is the calling of every Christian in whatever capacity God has granted them. Are you a Christian? Then you should walk with Christ and help others do the same. But we can't be a disciple without pursuing holiness. And we can't pursue holiness without setting aside the things that keep us from holiness. So convinced of these things and thinking about this, I, uh, I went out for a run. And I know that not all of you are runners, but, uh, but for me, that's, that, uh, that's kind of a stress relief. And I, I went out and I was, I was thinking about uh, this passage. I was thinking about personal holiness and what it would mean to press into that and, and what things need to be let go of and what things need to be pressed into. And, and then at the end of the run, I, I came to uh, the place to gather, the land that the church has. And, and uh, there's a little straw patch there in the center. It's, it's, uh, it's funny, we put down all this gravel and everything, but the grass seems to be victorious and it's growing through everything. But there's a little spot there that, uh, that um, was still kind of, uh, flat, and I, uh, I knelt down there and I prayed. And I thought, you know, as we're pressing in here um, to what it looks like to, to be holy, it's almost like um, the, the temple itself. Uh, the, what makes the temple holy or what made the temple holy was God's presence in it. And so I thought, what if we prayed that God's presence would be in this place in a special way? What if we prayed that things would be removed here that are not of God and that God's presence would tangibly, we know that God is all, uh, all over the place. He's everywhere. But what if he dwelt in a specific way in this place? I mean, after all, in the Old Testament, God said your camp should be holy. Jerusalem should be holy. Every place where you are should be holy because I should be there. What if we prayed for that? And then I thought, and then, you know, in me, what if I prayed that God's presence would be in me in such a way that, that when people encountered me, they would encounter the presence of God? Uh, I, I once heard a guy comparing it to this, that there, there should be a weightiness to a Christian's life so that when people come near them, they could kind of enter that orbit and be blessed by your presence. 
What if we all prayed for that, that God's presence would dwell in us in such a way that people would be blessed, and the further they came uh, towards us, the more they would encounter Christ, the more they would encounter God himself, because we're pressing in for personal holiness. What if we did that? What if we prayed like that? And so I started praying that way, and I thought, we need this as a church. I need this personally, and there are other things that perhaps we need to put away, like doubts and fears and worries and, and things, thoughts that, uh, that make us conflicted and unable to press into the fullness of what God has for us. So what if we press more fully into to who God is? And what if we were bold in addressing the mess in our lives and things that are not of God, things that, that have attracted us, that we, need to, that we need to walk away from. Today, I want to remind us of something we might have forgotten, something that we want to remember, something we want to press into, and it's holiness. I think holiness in Christian America is like those car keys that we've searched for and we looked for, we looked in the bedroom, we looked downstairs, we looked in the garage, we looked all over the place for those things. We can't find them, and after a while, we just gave up, and we forgot we were going on a journey anyway. I think holiness is something that we need to seek while we can. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that holiness is our purpose. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Our purpose is to glorify God, but we can only do so by being holy. And Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is our telos. It is our purpose, our end game, our resolution. And so holiness, if we think, well, we're Christians. Didn't Jesus die for our sins so we don't have to be holy any longer? No, Jesus died for our sins, so we bear them no more. We don't have guilt and shame, but not so we don't have to be holy. Jesus died for our sins so we can be holy. Jesus puts us in a position. We're positionally right before God, and we are on a path of sanctification, becoming increasingly holy the closer we get to the Lord. And when we are in his presence, we will be fully holy. And so if that's our path, that's the direction we should be moving into. So I want to encourage us um, this week to be thinking about this. What would it look like in my life if I prayed differently as a result of this? And what would it look like if I put a few things away that need to be put away? And would that improve my relationship with God? I've been a little dry lately, but maybe it's because I've not been walking the right direction. Maybe I need to move further up and further in towards God himself. Well, I'll end with this. This is from 1 Peter 1.13, starting there, 1.14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Father, thank you for your word. 
And uh, help us to press in. Help us to move up. Um, surely none of us have, are in the situation of Ezra 9.10. We're not putting away foreign wives, but uh, perhaps the gravity of that situation might help us to understand um, how important it is to put away things in our lives that are not of you, no matter how difficult that is. Uh, Father, I pray, Lord, for each man, woman, and child uh, that you would bless us, Lord. Help us to more fully enter your presence. And when people uh, come towards us, that they would more fully experience you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, continue our time uh, with the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, and this is the path. This is the the link that Jesus was willing to go to in order that we might be made holy before God, that his body would be broken and his, um, his blood shed. Uh, ushers, please come forward. We'll be passing out the, uh, the bread and the cup. This table who is, uh, is open to all who profess faith in Christ. And, uh, and this might be a really good and sweet time uh, if there's something between you and the Lord to... Uh, to confess that, and also to pray that his presence might more fully and tangibly be part of your life. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for uh, these gifts which we're about to receive. We are so grateful that you've called us towards holiness. Increase our vision, Lord, that we might see you more clearly, and as we see you more clearly, that we would praise you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.